You are listening to the Everyman Podcast. This is episode 55 with author Jed Diamond. I have a cold right now and I feel a bit nasally as I talk. I am sitting in my new home in Southern California, uh, adjusting to a completely new life. Yesterday was Father's Day and I think I had one of the better days it wasn't all good, but it was still one of the better days I've had maybe in my life in a really long time. And my life feels like it's literally starting over. Moving to California is a new chapter, and it feels absolutely like a new set point, a, an opportunity to, oh man, just sort of do everything over again. The move was <laughs> long and stressful at times. Uh, my favorite moment was I had a really bad cold. I got it just as we started the actual drive to California. And uh, descending out of the mountains and down onto the coast, my ears wouldn't pop. You know, I don't know if you've ever flown and had a cold and had your ears get plugged. It was, it was super painful. But I it felt like I had earmuffs on, like double layered, and I just couldn't hear anything. So my wife would talk to me. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear her. Uh, barely at all and <laughs> we get to a hotel and uh, we have some eucalyptus oil which you know helps your nasal passages open up so I sort of set this the shower to steam and I put a bunch of that eucalyptus oil on a washcloth and sort of huffed it and without thinking about it, I put it right over my eyes and it's just like, it was like you touched holy hellfire right to my eyeballs and uh, I just yelled in pain and it was, that stuff burns. Don't put eucalyptus oil on your eyeballs. Not a smart move. So what I'm getting to here is there was a moment where I was both blind and mostly deaf and it was just, it was just sort of like a comical peak to the entire experience of uh, driving down here. We had road trouble in Las Vegas and not bad road trouble. Didn't keep us too occupied for very long. So anyway, the move is done and I have a new home and I'm very excited and I'm excited to connect with people here in California as they travel through or as they live here to to get a, a, a larger and wider and broader diverse cast of characters to bring on the show. Uh, and I'm pretty fired up about that. We have just announced and released a couple dates for later in the year for our Everyman events for the rest of the year. We have our next melt training. It's going to be at IONS in Petaluma, California. So Northern California, north of the Bay Area. I think it's about an hour north of the Bay Area. It's October 5th through 7th. So if you are an experienced man and have done some level of, of deep soul searching work before, whether that's with Everyman or the Mankind Project or any other organization, or maybe you've done you know, a bunch of therapy or, or what, whatever it is where you have done some pretty deep inward looking yourself and, and you know, maybe in the context of, of other men or other groups, it doesn't need to be anything specific, but you need to have some experience to come to a melt training because the melt training is a leadership training and it is sort of, it takes the ball from where our open source leaves and picks it up and drives forward uh, firmly and boldly. This event will be led by Owen Marcus and Brad Golfini. Uh, Owen is our Yoda and Brad may be our um, Skywalker. Or just, I don't know how you want to say that, but very, very, very experienced men. And our last melt was just an incredible, incredible experience. And we're excited to bring that to the West Coast. So that's open. That's You can find that online at everyman.co. And then our next open source is not until December, so it's a ways away, but it is up for sale and up for grabs right now. We're back at our historic home in the Berkshires on the East Coast, uh, Western Massachusetts exactly is where this is. If you've not had the experience yet, do come. Come make this happen this year, and I'll see you there. You can also find that online at everyman.co. Those two events are up. Our expedition's coming up next week, so guys that are coming to that, I, I will see you in a couple days, and I'm excited to get up in the mountains and make that happen. Last but not least, we are, it seems like we're adding a new everyman group almost every day. I don't think it's quite that fast, but it feels like that. We just put a new one up in New Mexico and another one in Colorado and another one in Montana, all in the last couple of days. So in the last couple of days, it certainly has been one a day. Uh, we are starting to heat up. We have 
new groups coming up in LA and a bunch of new groups in New York City that have formed in this last month and a lot of other places too. So you can find that if you're interested in finding a group and sitting in for a night and seeing what this is all about or if you know you're ready and you want to start a group, we are here to support you. That is the fundamental purpose of what we are here for at Everyman is to create the experiences and the community and the tools to hand to men to build the communities and build the things they need and you need for your own self. This is not a uh, centralized model in a lot of ways. It's more of a decentralized model. We just want to support you to get what you want and need in the greater service of other people and the world, honestly. For me, it comes down to I need other men to hold me accountable and help me be a better husband and help me be a better father and help me be more effective at work. And, you know, there's a lot of ways we can get help as men. We can get therapy and coaches, which I do both. And this men's circle, this men's group thing is the most effective and the most efficient and probably the most powerful thing that I've ever done. Hence the fact that I'm <laughs> making it my very single pointed work right now. So on to the show. My guest today is Jed Diamond. And the coolest thing about this podcast and for me personally is just that Jed is literally 40, I don't remember what he said, 40 or 50 years into the career that I feel like I've just started. He has been working with men as a psychotherapist and a group leader and a facilitator for decades. And he asked me to read a copy of his upcoming book, which is called My Distant Dad. And it's about healing the father wound and how he did it himself. And it just came into my life at the most incredible time. Because this year, if you've been following the podcast, um, I had my dad to a retreat. And we've had just this incredible, incredible opening and uh, sort of reconnecting in our lives. And, and talking with Jed was just absolutely fascinating for me. He's written 15 books. He's an internationally best-selling author. Uh, you can you can look him up and, and, and read all the, it'll take you a minute to read just the names of the books that he's written. He's written so many books. And in a lot of ways, and I, I said this to him in the podcast, that I would love 40 years from now to be invited on, on some uh, upstarts, you know, podcast and be interviewed about all the books I wrote and all about all the work I did for men in my life. And uh, so there's a cool resonance there. There's a cool sort of elder mentor uh, dynamic going on here. And I really appreciate Jed. I really appreciate his time and, and all of his wisdom. And uh, I think there's a lot to get here in terms of manhood, fathers, sons, healing, this whole thing. And and it's a good reminder to know that, you know, us at Everyman, we are not, uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants in every way. We are not coming up with this stuff. We did not invent it. We are just pushing it here and now and, and, and recreating it in a way that we hope uh, the world can hear and accept and understand and get on board with. So um, I really appreciate it and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay. So if I pick my nose, uh, nobody's going to notice. In fact, you're encouraged. You can... You can... <laughs> Pick your nose all you'd like. Oh, good. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to get us going with uh, something of an informal start. Um, I'll introduce you officially. Uh, on a, I'll, I'll record a separate intro and everybody will know who you are. Okay. Uh, so we get to just drop into it. Uh, where I would love to start would be, man, so I just read, so for all the listeners, I just read your most recent book, Jed. And uh, so I feel like I know. I know a lot about you. <laughs> yeah. If you read my book, you're going to know a lot about a, a pretty significant section of my life. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a very, very uh, deep um, biography in, in many ways, am amongst many other things, but that's, that's what I got. So how about um, when you, I'm going to challenge you, could you do a 30 to 60 second biography for, for the audience just to give people a a sense of who you are in a big picture? Yeah, let, let me do it in a couple of ways. Uh, one part is uh, that I think is a significant part of, are a couple of the stories that really have crafted my life. Uh, you, you know from the, the book 
that uh, one of the key beginnings happened when I was five years old, when my father had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. And he was struggling. He was a midlife man kind of struggling with how do I make a living to support my family at a time when that was very difficult. Still is difficult for a lot of us. Yeah. And that breakdown and the subsequent loss of my father to our family put me on a path of trying to figure out what happened to my father, what had happened to me someday. Is there some way I could learn to prevent that from happening to me and then other families that, you know, I might get to know over time. So that really led me on a, uh, a quest to learn a lot. Uh, I ended up going to, you know, graduate school in uh, social work and psychology. I was in medical school for a time and then became a therapist and a writer. And I've written a, the, the book you read is the 15th book that I've written. Uh, they really are infused by that story and then a second story after my first son was born where I made a vow to him that I would be a different kind of father than my father was able to be for me mm. and to do everything I could to create a different kind of world where, you know, fathers and their children weren't disconnected, who were able to, you know, heal the wounds and be together. And that's uh, Jamal was uh, born in 1969. So I'm coming up on, uh, you know, almost 50 years of the work that I've been doing actively, professionally, along with 70 years since I was five years old when my father had the breakdown. So that's wow. as, as short an intro to who I am and what I do. And and my work, I think, is I could probably offer. Well, that's per That's beautiful. So I'm going to ask you the blunt question first. Uh, the the promise or the intention you set with your second son, se second son, right? You said Jamal. Jamal, yeah. Uh, did did you succeed? Well, it's it's still in process. I, I see it as a journey. Yeah. Um, I now have five children, uh, seventeen grandchildren. You know, I've been working in the field of uh, helping men and the families that love them for now 50 years. This year will be 50 years. And I, you know, continue to be passionate about it, continue to learn a lot. Uh, this book was kind of my uh, journey up until now and also a recognition that I see so many men and women who grew up with fathers who were either distant absent, rejecting, or dysfunctional in some ways, mm. and that both influenced who we were as children, who we were as adolescents, who we are as adults, how our relationships have been, and uh, recognizing that if we can heal some of those old wounds, we can not only heal ourselves, our relationships, but maybe even heal some of the you know, the violence that's going on in the world, the planetary disruptions that are going on, that in a way healing the past enables us to both heal the present and potentially heal the future. Yeah, that's, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be more uh, affected by what you just said in that. And some of the listeners who've been following will know this, but this spring specifically has been uh, the biggest and most impactful time in my life in in concern to my father and and I would say to my son in a sense too or, or the last year year and a half but most recently this spring with my dad and I think I shared with you Jed briefly mm -hmm. but uh yeah my, my dad had the courage to come on a retreat that I was leading and uh, all of those things you just said about the impact well, actually, everything you just said, just the impact my dad had on me as a child and as an adolescent and how that carried through my adulthood. I feel like now after what's happened between my father and I, that we've really come together, really seen each other, really mm -hmm. honored each other and loved each other. Yeah. I feel different about my entire past with him. I, I, I've, it's the, the most amazing thing happened where in that retreat, like I just felt free to love my dad in a way mm. that that I think I'd always wanted to do 
Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a million ways I want to take this, but, but a couple, like reading your book was really, really, and so what, the name of it is My Dad, right? Or what's the name? Well, of the, the, the whole title is My Distant Dad, My Distant Healing Dad. the Family Father Wound. And that, it's, a, it's a memoir. It takes people through, as you know, a, yeah. a journey, a life journey, hopefully one that's engaging, enticing, interesting. But also, as I you know, did my own healing, it represented, I think, some of the journeying that so many people resonate with, either mm. are in some place in that journey in their own lives. And then there's an accompanying, I call it a playbook that goes with it to take, as it turned out, 38 questions that really get mm. answered in the course of that story, and then allows people to apply those questions to their own lives. So I take people through, uh, you know, a workshop, workbook kind of process so that men and women can reflect on their own wounds, how those can be healed, how their relationships can be healed. And hopefully it, you know, can help what I've learned or, you know, literally millions of, of grown men and women and then behind them, adolescents and children who have grown up in families where there was some dysfunction, where their relationship with their dads have been dis functional or disconnected and hence the relationships with their moms suffer, the relationships mm -hmm. with their siblings are affected. And then those early family relationships then get taken on in the rest of our relationship life until we begin to heal those things. So mm -hmm. uh, my hope is that this process and both my books, workbooks, classes, counseling and the other things that I do can be a source of learning and healing for people as we all go through life dealing with the challenges that are unique to each of us but are also in a sense collective challenges that many of us are facing yeah and that's one of the things that i found so helpful about reading your work was you know i'm 36 and i just had my first kid about to have my second and and I've said this, you know, this is one of the simple core things of benefit that comes out of men getting together is it's just hearing your story. It, it just helped normalize my own path and, mm -hmm. you know, all of my insecurities and not sure where to go and what to do and becoming a dad and just difficulty in relationships and all of that. You know, I really, I honestly believe that any time that we hear an honest, full, like recounting of a, another man's story, it just, it, it strengthens us. And it strengthened me to read your book. And, Good. Yeah. Well, then it did, it did, it did, it did its job and does its job. And, and I just mentioned, you know, the age that you are, I, I believe in my kind of formulation that somewhere between 36, 37, 38 in that age range. I call it is, is the first opportunity we have to become our own man. That mm. I think that in some ways, you know, in our 20s, we get out in the world and in some form, we either do what our parents wanted us to do or we rebel against what our parents wanted us to do, mm. as society wanted. And then somewhere between 33 and 36, 37, we start, you know, putting down roots, starting to really find our place, whether that's our physical place where we're going to live, mm -hmm. you know, or our emotional place. It's really, we start putting down roots. And then really for the first time, we start asking these deeper questions, whether they're conscious questions or just part of our, our, our living of, you know, who am I, you know, in a way, now that I've done what I was supposed to do or rebelled against what I was supposed to do, what do I really want? Who am I? What's my path? What am I here to do? Hmm. And it's often the beginning of us finding our calling in life or finding, you know, what that thing is. And I think, and, you know, it ties into with what you're doing is there's, I think, a necessity almost for this kind of questioning to take place within, you know, a structure of supported manhood. Yeah. You know, I've been in a men's group, I think, you, you know, I talk about it in the book, uh, with the same group of men we've been meeting now uh, for almost 40 years. Next year will be 40 years. And my wife, who I've been married to for 39 years, 
says that one of the reasons we've had a really good relationship for 39 years is that I've been in a men's group for 40 years. <laughs> so I think the kind of, you know, we, so many of us in the society uh, moves us in a direction of being kind of the, the lone wolf. I can take care of myself. I've got to keep my own counsel. You keep it inside. I, I don't need other people. You know, that's, and yet, if we're going to really be the man that we are, need to be, and want to be, I think that has to take place in the context of a community. Yeah. A community that has many different elements, men, women, children. But there's an importance in a community of men. And I think that's an ancient tradition yeah. of male hunters that would go out in a hunter-gatherer thousands of years of human history that, you know, even though we don't do that to make a living very much anymore of actually hunting together, and yet that need to be part of a community that supports each other, part of a, you know, an ongoing band of brothers is something that I think is still built into our, our, our cells, our genetics, that really is quite important if we're going to really survive and thrive in the world. I, I couldn't agree. Do you think that, is there a, a correlation between the ages of, like you said, 36, 37, 38, and finding a community? Do you think that maybe it's the age where guys are like, oh, yeah, I can't do I can't do this on my own. Um, I'm just kind of making that up. But I'm, I'm curious about that age specifically, I mean, because I'm there. But uh, what do you think it is that makes that a kind of a regular pivot point? Um, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, well, I think there's, again, a, a, a natural uh, opportunity or opening. It's generally the time when, uh, we, we, if we have children, it's the time the children are starting to get to an age where we're engaged with them or they're mm -hmm. looking for something from us. It's a time that if we have had a wound from our father or our mother or growing up, it, you know, we slow down enough in our work life to be able to start wondering about what that is and to question those things. So I think it's a natural opening. Mm -hmm. Not everybody takes it. You know, as being an older man, I see people who don't recognize that, who just keep barreling on doing what they were supposed to do, mm -hmm. which many do, or rebelling against what they were supposed to do and never finding their own thing, then, you know, hit their 50s, which yeah. is the, you know, I wrote a book called Male Menopause and the changes that men go through at midlife that starts happening in our, you know, mid 40s to, you know, late 50s and into the 60s. If you didn't do the work you're talking about in our mid 30s, then it comes again. You know, we, we, the universe gives us another opportunity yeah. to deal with it then at, at midlife. And I think if we don't do it then, then our later years, we start getting physically sick, we yeah. get more cancers, heart disease, that I think in some way are, are not just diseases of aging, but are diseases of disconnection. Mm. That really, we're disconnected from our heart, disconnected from each other, disconnected from you know, our, our passion, mm -hmm. our calling in life. So I think there's opportunities at the age you're talking at maybe the first real opening at that time. And that's why I think, you know, that having opportunities for men to grab a hold at that time, to reach out yeah. to other men, to be part of the community is a, is a wonderful gift that we need more opportunities in our society. Yeah, the, um, you know, I, I feel like science is really, science plus mainstream media are starting to uh, talk about and well understand and talk about the the lack of connection and how much that hurts us was that part of the dialogue 20 30 40 years ago like when you were starting out in this was that was that understood amongst a group of people I, it's um, that's actually one of the stuff I'm most curious about talking mm -hmm. to you about I'm curious about that and I'm curious about you know a 35 36 year old guy in the eighties, you know, maybe my dad's generation. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious what his, if he would have had access or I don't know to any yeah, of the, the short answer is not so much. Mm. Um, I think that most of the, 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 the path in that time of life was more 
did I lose you? No, I'm here. Can you oh, hear me? You're still there. Good. Yep. Yep. Uh, that path to the life was more to to the view that said you 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 grow up, you become an adult, and then that's kind of it. You just ride adulthood until you retire. Yeah. You know, there wasn't so much of a sense of these these uh, passages or these periods of life. And so as a result, we all hit those times, but we just barreled on through them. And I, you know, and, and when I was at that age, you know, I was lucky. I was one of the few that, you know, that was more psychologically oriented. You know, by then I had, you know, one of the benefits of coming through a time where you go through some trauma early and you become a psychotherapist and a, and a writer. So, you know, right. I, I of necessity was focusing on those, but most of my peers were not. Uh, you know, my first book, uh, Inside Out, Becoming My Own Man, came out in 1983. And the whole idea, I mean, to give you an idea of, of the times, I couldn't get anybody to publish the book. You know, no nobody had any interest in a reflective book on what it meant to be a man. Um, and I eventually published it myself, even though right before I published it, a major publisher wanted to do it. And by then I went, hey, I'm going to do it myself. I've learned how to mm -hmm. publish my own book. I started my own publishing company. So I can tell you a lot has changed. We really are at a, a new new opening for men's work, men's health, relationship work reflective work, really understanding our connections to ourselves, each other, gender, sexual issues. Mm -hmm. These are all really important things that are much more open, much more available. We still have a long ways to go, but we're definitely in a much better place than we, we have been through most of my, my experiential history. That makes me feel really good, actually. Well, yeah, no, it makes me feel hopeful. Makes me feel excited. I would is Inside Out still available to to buy anywhere? Uh, you can find them. Uh, you know, used copies on Amazon. Okay. I have a few copies that I, you know, people ask me. Uh, uh, you can see over my shoulder here on my bookshelf. There's some of my previous books that I still have copies of. So I, you know, luckily they're available. In, you know, in used bookstores. Hopefully you can. Fine. We have a wonderful local used bookstore that carries a, a lot of, obviously, my books, but other books. So, uh, yeah, we, I try to keep as much of my things in print and out there as I can. Yeah, I would like to. That's going to be the next book I read because I, that was, so 83 if it came out. I was born in 82. Okay. And, and I'm just about ready to take on my first big writing project in this in this area. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I think that'd be really, really good. Cool. Well, you get a yeah. certainly a glimpse of that that age, that period of time, and uh, you know, I was obviously in a, uh, an old. You know, what was I in '83? So I was uh, forty. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was born in '43, so forty years old thereabouts. But you can see kind of the, you know, who what I was dealing with at that time of life, trying to share. Some of these, you know, what I thought were really important men's issues that at the time very few people, you know, understood or even had an interest in. Mm -hmm. Did you write uh, pretty continuously since since then? Since your first book, was it were, the, were your books pretty regularly spaced out? They they were spaced out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in in more ways than one. Uh, my my <laughs> second book, uh, I, I I can tell you, you know, that all my books answered a question of what's going on with me and how can I make sense of it? Mm -hmm. And if it's happening for me, maybe it's happening to a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. So my second book was called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, mm. Overcoming Romantic and Sexual Addictions. Mm. So during that time, that came out in 1988. That was during that previous probably 10 years. There was a lot of, you, you read about it in Inside Out, Becoming My Own Man, some of the, quote, sexual revolution and sexual experimentation and open marriage and that kind of thing. And then how a lot of those early experiments led to, 
you know, emotional addictions or sexual addictions or, um, you know, really losing connection with real intimacy, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because most of us didn't learn real intimacy in our families or in our early lives. And so we were prone to looking for love in all the wrong places, which was yeah. the time of the book and it became a international bestseller and a lot of people read it and it kind of opened up worlds that most people were struggling with to some degree, but didn't have, you know, the, the understanding or the guidance to get through it. Cool. Was that your, was that your biggest book by numbers or did you go, go on? I, I haven't done the research. I've yeah. Well, you know, from there I went to uh, uh, the warrior's journey home, healing men, healing the planet. So it really took a lot of the, what I had learned about addictions and about planetary healing and the relationship between our inner world and the outer ecology of how we take mm-hmm. care or don't care, take care of the environment. And then I, I had a whole series of books that looked at uh, the changes that we go through at midlife. So okay. starting with male menopause and then surviving male menopause, those two were probably in terms of just reach and uh, uh, numbers of people that read it, probably the, be- the, mm-hmm. the most largely read books because uh, male menopause, again, kind of broke new ground in the field. There was very little uh, had been written. It was kind of a joke. Oh, yeah, male menopause, men go through, you know, and, and yet what I saw was that men, in fact, went through a change of life that was every bit as mm-hmm. challenging as what women went through. So that book became, again, a, 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 a national bestseller. And then if, I, if you were looking over this shoulder up on the wall, there's translations in 17 or 18 foreign languages from Chinese to Japanese to Korean to Hebrew to Czech to uh, Slovakia to uh, German, French. Uh, so it, it really spread all over the world. And, and that was then followed by uh, uh, a book called The Irritable Male Syndrome that looked at male depression and aggression. And then they've kind of gone on from there to a book on the enlightened marriage that looks at the five stages of love, mm. why so many get stuck at stage three, and then on to you know, the books that you described uh, that have to do with this whole look at our family and father history. How does it feel? I'm so interested. How does it feel to look back on your body of work and just share just, I mean, the success and the, and the breadth and just all of it. How, wh- what is your experience as you talk about it? Well, I feel one just very humble to be able to be making a living and a good living doing what I love to do. Yeah. Number one. Number two, I feel really happy and gifted to be able to have learned from and touched so many people because I, you know, as you can tell, I like to interact with people. People, you know, find me uh, on my website on menalive.com and they emailed me, they write me, they call me. Some people come out for counseling. I do groups. So I really feel like this body of work isn't just about me. It's about us. It's about we, you know, creating this together. In fact, I'll, I'll put this out to you and to your, to your listeners. Uh, October 6th, uh, this year, 2018, we're having a big party here in Willis. Uh, and Willis, for those who don't know where Willis is, Northern California, north of San Francisco, about three, three and a half hour drive. And so we're having a celebration of my 50 years working in the field and for the, the launch of the, the print books of uh, my, my, I call it my, my father series, my distant dad and the workbook. And so anybody that would like to come and meet me in person, come out for a visit, you know, let me know, email me, uh, I'll send you an invitation to the party and we'll come and, because really it's, it's, it's your party. And I mean, you, now, now you're part of it because we're interacting, your listeners cool. are, because we really are all on this journey together. We all have a part of the story that collectively that we have. 
and that we all have something that we can teach each other, we can learn from each other. Uh, and so it's nice to periodically, as you know, with the, the gatherings you do and the retreats that you do, it's nice to periodically kind of gather the tribe physically together so you yeah. can meet directly, see each other, hug each other, touch each other, share food together, share some music together, and have some fun. So, you know, if you're, you're, you hear this and you, you want to connect and come out for the party in October, uh, you know, be my guest and enjoy meeting you and hanging out with you. Awesome. Uh, I'm sitting here feeling very strongly that uh, I would, I'm, I'm, I have a new set of goals like forming as we talk and, and not just now, but since we've talked a few times, Jed, I would just dream about, you know, 40, 30, 40 years from now, uh, being asked by some younger man who's just starting out in the field of, of helping men. I would love to be in your chair 40 years from now, yeah. ha having, you know, touched a lot of lives and, and passed. And I keep having this thought of, uh, I wish I could take a USB drive and like stick it under your ear and download all of your knowledge about men and family and then stick it in my ear but then i realized i just need to read all 15 books that, that maybe a little longer but that'll get it there i think well that probably more important than that you know is you know the the chair that i'm sitting in uh part of getting to where i've gotten is being willing in a sense to stay in the chair mm. whatever that is to stay you know i mentioned i've been in a men's group for 40 years well, that isn't an easy thing to do, as you know, to meet regularly over many years to go through the conflicts, the disconnections. They, for instance, you know, we all used to live close to each other when we started out 40 years ago, but you move away. A couple of guys drop out, a couple of guys join the group, the newest guy joined the group 18 years ago, so mm -hmm. it's been a pretty stable group. But to do that requires a level of commitment that says, I'm going to stay. There was a decision that we made as, as a group, you know, probably 18, 20 years ago, where instead of saying, okay, we'll be together as long as, you know, it's working for us, or as long as we, it, it's convenient, or as long as we're still learning something, where we said, we're gonna be together until we're all dead, and maybe then some. So one guy has died, since the group started. Um, so there's one less of us. We talked about whether we'd add anybody and decided we're gonna just be the guys that are together and when each of us dies, then we'll honor that man. He'll still be part of the group. He just won't be here in physical body. So part of, I think, what I, I'm hoping to share with you as a younger man and others is that if, if you are drawn to this work, either through your own wounds, through your own excitement and desires, or some combination that you say, this work with men, this work you know, in reaching people and sharing this is my destiny, it's part of my calling, then that requires something of us. It requires that we stay with it mm -hmm. for the long haul, mm -hmm. you know? And, so if you say you'd like to be in my shoes, you know, in 40 years talking to a younger man, well, stay in your seat, keep doing this, you know, because it'll get hard at times. As you know, it probably already has gotten hard at times. And you think maybe I ought to do something else. Maybe I, can I make a living at this? Can I do this? And, mm -hmm. you know, if you find this is your calling, you, you find a way to do it. Just like my men's group found a way to keep meeting. Yeah. Uh, that means that in our case, three times a year, one of the guys who lives in Washington State in Seattle flies to the men's group meeting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on one, one meeting a year, we all, all the, the five of us, fly up to Seattle. We got a, a, a meeting coming up. Well, that requires something of you. But when you've said, hey, we're going to keep meeting till we die, um, and that's important, or I'm gonna keep writing books until I can't write anymore. I'm gonna keep talking to people. I'm gonna keep interacting. Well, that's the kind of longevity. That's the kind of, you know, uh, a commitment to your craft, mm. to, in my case, to the commitment I made to my son, to 
what I needed to heal with my father that continued on all these years. You know, now I've got grandchildren that, you know, you talked about your, your dad being at your, you know, I had the honor of having, you know, three of my sons go through men's gatherings that I was at. Nice. And recently I've had two of my grandsons <laughs> go through that, that process. And that, that kind of passage and passing on both in our own families and then with, you know, with the younger men and women that, that I have contact with. That's how that's how you do it. You keep yeah. at it. Beautiful. Thank you for that. The other big question that's looming here is I'm curious about what you think about the state of men today or the uh, not just men but let's start there. Are you are you hopeful? Are you more hopeful? Are you less hopeful? Are you uh what do you think where do you think we are? What what's What's your assessment of the current state today? Well, I, I can tell you, one, I, I'm very hopeful. Great. Um, and I'm also uh, very concerned mm. because I see, uh, the way I describe it to my clients, if you're sitting here in my office, which you can see a little piece up here, and people that are listening to that can't see it at all, so I'll just tell you, if, if you look ahead, there's one window this way, there's another window this way. And I kind of think of life as having two windows. You know, one window you might think of when you look out that window, you see all the hope, the positive, you know, the potential, the good things that have happened, the love, the joy, that's real, that's there. But, you know, there's another window you can look at. And out of that window, you see, you know, the violence, you see the shootings that, you know, again, that we've had you know, recently in Texas, and you go, my God, when, when is it going to end? And you see the children again with tears in their eyes saying, you know, enough, you know, when are the adults going to step up mm -hmm. and do their jobs to protect us? Yeah. You know, we, that shouldn't be the children's job to step up and, you know, be the ones to protect themselves. That's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that window that makes me feel angry, concerned, hurt, depressed. But what I know is to the degree that I spend time looking out the window of despair, I'm going to bring in more of that into the world mm -hmm. because I believe that we, we bring in more of what we focus our attention on. So I take glimpses out there and you can't not see what's going on, but then I go, all right, given what's going on in the negative world, what are we going to do about that? Yeah. For instance, I wrote an article um, six months before the last presidential election. So if you can think back that far to the last presidential election, and it was before anybody knew anything much about Donald Trump. Um, and certainly at the time, almost nobody considered him a serious candidate, that he would certainly not do very well in the Republican you know, against the other eight or nine people that were running at the time. Six months before the election, I wrote an article that was published. So, you know, I, it's not one of those, yeah, you can look in hindsight, you can actually look it up. It's there, it's on the web, on my site and on the Good Men Project. And I predicted that Donald Trump would be the next president. Hmm. And my reasoning was that what I saw in him was a wounded man. Somebody, you know, I knew a little bit about his his you know, just from reading, he didn't say this, but from reading about him, you know, his father was not very present. He was a very, you know, hard-nosed businessman, didn't have a lot of time for his son, you know, and the little that uh, Trump had written about his own life, you know, was fairly violent. He had been mm -hmm. sent to military school when he was young. His younger brother, he kind of beat up on. And, and so I said, I think there's an energy in our collective consciousness in the world that unconsciously resonates with Donald Trump. A lot of men that feel that same pain and in some way translates that into some of the same fears, some of the same uh, anger, some of the same blame, some of the same, you know, anti-female feeling that, you know, that's so prevalent in his psyche. And I predicted that 
people would not consciously say, oh, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because, you know, I have the similar kind of wounds and I have a lot of the rage that he has. Right. But it was resonating in the culture. And I think part of what I think is both the sadness and the hope is that we are surfacing a lot more of that pain and a lot more of that violence and a lot more of the misogyny and anti-female and, you know, and that, you know, macho, I, you know, I, I'm the, the man, I'm the champion. Uh, we're the best country in the world. We're going to build a wall and keep every, you know, that, that consciousness is one that's been bubbling under the surface for a long time. Yeah. And now it's coming out where we can look at it. And I think the positive part is we can begin to heal it. We can begin hopefully not to, to demonize it. You know, a lot of the people on my kind of political persuasion who come from the left want to demonize, you know, those people on that side as they, you know, demonize us. I don't think that's very helpful. I think we have to see, again, the world as it is, the pain, the suffering as it is, and we need to find ways to begin to heal that. And I think men and men's work is the catalyst for that. Mm -hmm. We're, in a way, the canaries in the coal mine who are representing to the world the pain and suffering, both. I mean, look at the, the school shooters are almost all men. You know, the, the violence that's you know, going on. And that doesn't mean that we're the bad guys. It means in some way we hold the collective suffering that needs to be surfaced so that we can begin to heal that. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening. I think we're going to see a, a flowering of healing and a flowering of changing a societal way of looking at the world that's, that's very cut off, mm -hmm. very, you know, angry, very feeling of what the hell, you know, what's the use, you know, the world's going to, you know, hell in a handbasket. So you might as well just get what you, you can. I see a very hopeful future, but it's one that it has to be as much men's work is through the pain, through right. the suffering, through the healing. You can't, you know, go from mountaintop to mountaintop and avoid yeah. going down into the valleys of despair and the valleys of pain and suffering and work. But more and more people want to do that. More and more people recognize that. And I really think that's the hope for the future. What message do you think that mainstream culture, what is it that they need to hear to pierce through all the noise around, I guess to, to, to show them that men are, are violent because they're hurting, right? I mean, that's, so that's my belief in, in maybe that's not total, but that, you know, men hurt other people and they hurt themselves a lot of times because of their own pain, their own wounding. And so what I, there's a lot of, to me, rightful blame that, you know, women have against men. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of stuff. There's just so much. It's such a complicated conversation. What do you feel would break through that? What message does the world need to hear about this? Well, the message that I think uh, we hear in our own hearts when we take time to listen is the reality that many, many of us, if not most of us, have been wounded and were wounded early on in our families. You know, fathers that is, you know, as you know from, from the book, the ones I found the father wound and realized how I was wounded growing up in the family that I grew up in. Then I also had to recognize that my father was wounded from the family he grew up in. Right. And my mother was wounded because she lost her father when she was five years old. And I realized that all three of my wives, not all together, I had two wives and two divorces before I met Carl and my present wife, I mentioned who I've been <laughs> married to now for 39 years. But I realized that all the women in my life also had father wounds. Mm. They had grown up with fathers that were absent or violent or destructive in some way. So I think part of the message that I, you know, that I'm hopefully offering to the world at this time and through my books and through my work is that we're, we're really all wounded in some ways mm. and that trying to blame 
somebody for the wounds, you know, doesn't get us very far because as soon as you recognize the wound, you got to realize where did that person get that? If you really get, you know, violent people are violent 100% because in some way they were violated. Yeah. You may not know where the violation was. You may not be aware of it, but if you just begin to know that, I talk to women, you know, who say, every woman knows a woman who at some point had been violated, had been abused, and at some point does something hurtful to somebody else. It may have been to one of her children, it may be to her husband, it may be to somebody else, and women will immediately get, oh, I get it. You know, there's a point at which you become violent to somebody else because you were violated. So they get the connection, Mm. but often they need to get help to realize that same connection is true those men that you see are violent, those men that are being abusive sexually, those men that are, you know, doing these horrible things. I, I can guarantee you that every one of those men, somewhere in their childhood, somewhere in their background, they were an abused child, just like Donald Trump was, just like any of the men, that, you know, if you knew their story, yeah. and being a psychotherapist, for 50 years, I know yeah. a lot of the stories of the men who we think of as horrible, despicable, you know, hurtful people. And once you hear the stories, it doesn't excuse what they did, mm-hmm. but it helps you understand that if we're going to prevent the next one, the next shooting from happening, we have to begin to stop blaming ourselves, stop blaming each other, and really start focusing on how do we heal the wounds? How do we heal ourselves? How do we heal our families? How do we heal our communities? How do we heal our world? And that's what I'm committed to. You know, I have a number of programs that I'm involved with that I invite other people, if this resonates with you, to reach out and say, hey, I resonate with that. You know, where can we work together to really put our future in the hands of healing, not in the future for blaming and yeah. making somebody else wrong. I mean, what a vision. If, if you could hit critical mass and people, the majority of people would look at things that way and, and understand in that compassionate way what a different world we could live in. It seems such a, uh, I don't want, it's not obvious, but, but in some ways it isn't obvious. It does seem obvious that that's true. And, and I wonder, what is it that makes it so hard to accept that? that people are hurt and they're hurting others because of that. Is it just a reactionary thing because it's just easier to blame or what, what do you think? Well, there, I think there's two things. One is we know now from modern brain science, you mentioned science earlier. What we know from modern brain science is that we have evolved all of us that are alive today from people who focused on the negative. That mm-hmm. is when you saw a little rustle in the, in the weeds back, you know, thousands of years ago, you're on the plains of Africa, you know, we're trained to assume that that's a a wild lion out there that may be stalking us. And so we, we, we focus on looking for the problems. And we're the, the ones that descended from the people that were overly negative, but we survived. So one part of it is, Negativity is kind of built into our default setting unless we realize that and then can question. Mm. That might have been helpful when there might be wild lions out there, but not so helpful when I keep seeing the world as, you know, negative and bad and there's not much you can do. So that's one. Secondly, if you think about how do you now in modern life learn about what's going on in the world? And most of what we learn is through media. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us, you know, we're on 24-hour television. The internet is all the time. And most of us then learn what's happening. Well, what we're seeing is a picture that is filtered by media that, for the most part, you know, makes its living by creating 
negativity, mm. you know, stories that say, let me tell you about all the great men's groups that are going on in the world. Let me tell you about, you know, these shifts of consciousness that are going on. You don't hear about those. Mm. But the truth is, when you say, what would it take to have a world like that? Let me tell you, because I travel all over. I'm in touch with those people. It is happening right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, this positive shift, yeah. you know, of really beginning to see that kind of healthy healing consciousness rather than a blame and shame consciousness is happening more and more and more. And we say, when will it reach critical mass? I think it is reaching critical mass. And there's going to become a point pretty soon where it will start breaking through the media. You'll start seeing mm. it. You go, whoa, here's those stories. I mean, just as an example, you know, the killings that happened in the last, you know, ones where you then had media that were focused for, you know, half of the news cycle on the young people and their own voices. Right. Singing voices and tears saying, enough, we are the ones. We are going to do it. If well, you would have never seen that even mm. six months ago. There would have just been the traditional, yeah, another killing and the candles, you know, on the graves and mm. all the, the talking heads talking about. Well, now you're actually hearing a, a very different healing story that mm. captured the whole news cycle for, as you know, you know, 24, 48, you know, hours and still going on. I mean, even now you keep seeing little clips of some of those early things so the good news is it is happening and it's happening more and more and the more people begin to believe it the more they'll see it and the more they see it that positive cycle starts manifesting itself and then will as you're doing right now creating your own news media yeah. i mean right you're going to have a lot of people listening to this and will hear something that they're not going to hear yeah. You know, on on regular network TV or on the regular network internet connection. So that's yeah. why this is so important. Beautiful answer, man. That's wonderful. Are you a fan of technology? Do you like the Do you like the the way that that's changing the world? I just heard a a guy talk, and he said in the 21st century. He, d he doesn't expose, so this was, uh, he was quoting Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist for Google, mm -hmm. who, who said that um, in this century, we won't have a hundred years of human pro technological process. I don't know if he said technological or human. Anyway, he thinks we'll have 20,000 years of progress in this hundred years. That's just so overwhelming. I don't know what to do with that. But the way, the way I take it is, is I do think that te technology is requiring us to um also land in our in our like deep simple humanity in a way to balance things out um that's just my little philosophical note on that but i'm curious what do you think about technology in the future and all that okay. well let, let me give you a, a a two window view right the positive window and the, the negative window so there's another tech guy that i i've been in touch with and have corresponded with and now i'm working with his name is mo Gadot. Yeah. M-O, you know, Mo Gadot. Yeah. And he just wrote a book called Solve for Happy. Hmm. And the idea was he had gotten all, he was at Google X. That was kind of the pinnacle of his career with the Moonshot Lab where you're, you know, doing great technological things. And yet he found he was depressed and, and, and unhappy at all that money could buy. Had a tragedy in his family where his son died. And he then figured out you know, if we're going to survive, we're going to have to learn how to move from depression to happiness. And what, because he's a tech guy, he made a big commitment to make 10 million people happy, to mm. share what he learned with 10 million people. And he wrote this book, came out last year, Solve for Happy. And it immediately, because of technology, caught on. and shot way past helping 10 million people. So he started a new goal yeah. and he's decided, all right, we're going to recommit ourselves instead of 10 million, 1 billion people happy, yeah. 1 billion. So for those that are not number people, like I'm not one of those, I said, all right, how much is that? Well, it's a thousand million. <laughs> 
So he's <laughs> what seemed like a big old 10 million, now he's expanded to a thousand million. And he's on his way to that. And I said, when I reached out to him, I said, well, half of those billion people are men, probably, mm -hmm. and other things being about half are men. So I said, well, I'm going to work with you with the work that I do to help us get a half billion men, you know, happy and learning yeah. these things. And so he and I are working together. You can check his website, One Billion Happy. Some of my articles he's posting on his website. If you go to my website, menalive.com, you'll see some of the things I've written about his work. Well, that's the positive side of what technology can do. A potential negative, he said, you know, with artificial intelligence really getting more and more, you know, that mm -hmm. basically uh, you know, robots are going to know more, can do more, can think faster, can solve more problems quicker than humans. And that can be a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Or those robots may decide that the problem is humans and get rid of the solve because yeah. they'll have the technology to be able to do that. So his way of dealing with that reality is to say, well, you know, I asked him, well, how, Mo, how, do you, how do you control the computers? How do you control artificial intelligence? How do you control those robots that we're making that may get smarter than we are and maybe decide that, you know, humans shouldn't be here. They're part of the problem. He said, we can't control them. What we can do is to give them good role models. Hmm. Way that we would with our children. Sure. We have to create, you know, people in the world. If we get a billion happy and then two billion happy, then the artificial intelligence machines that are out there looking at how do humans do their lives? Yeah. If what they see is they kill each other, you know, they're violent, they're going to go, oh, I get it. That's kind of how you solve problems. You kill and you're violent. And so it's going to yeah. come, yeah, well, I guess if these people are doing stuff that's contrary to the survival of most, maybe we ought to get rid of them. On the other hand, if they look out at the world and they go, oh, humans, geez, they used to be pretty violent, but now look how they're getting along. Look how they're solving for happy. Then they're going to go, oh, okay. You know, now that we're in control, we need to, you know, do what we're learning, which is to be good, responsible whatever those are, adult, you know, artificial intelligence or robots, or they'll call them human and us, whatever that will turn out to be in the future. But I think that's both a very realistic, you know, technology is here and it's going to expand and it's going to go faster and faster. And that can either lead to getting rid of humans if we don't shape up, we don't learn, we don't, but we can now use technology to reach a billion people. Right. I couldn't even conceive of, you know, in the work you asked me when I started out, you know, when I started working, a book that might reach two or three or five or 10,000 people. Now my books and my writing and my articles are reaching literally millions. Mm -hmm. And we have the potential together through, you know, media and other ways to reach billions and really change the world for the better. So that that's you know, for the number of years I still have to live, which I expect to be quite a few, that's what I want to do. I want to have fun. I want to reach out to others. I want to work with people like Mo Gadot and people like you and others that really feel committed to making the world the kind of place we want for our children and grandchildren and seven generations in the future, as you know, the Native Americans talk about. Mm -hmm. We're in a, in a really wonderful time of life. I can't imagine you know, being at any better time of life than where we are now to do the kind of positive change that needs to be done and that I think most people want to do. Wow. I, I'm, I'm leaving this conversation feeling pretty good. I am, I'm feeling confident that I'm going to stay in my chair and that we're going to train robots to be nice to us. <laughs> I'm feeling good about it all. Thank you so much, Jed. I, um, yeah. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and uh, I'm excited to get to know you more and, and learn more about your work and just keep, keep doing this. Um, Good. So, well, let's definitely do it. When you get out to California, you know, we'll be in the same state, come on up and visit. And if you want to come up for the party in October, uh, 
uh, or over or down. I can't, I can't picture exactly whether you're over or coming, yeah. coming south or, but, uh, you know, the invitation is there. And uh, again, to your listeners, anybody that wants to reach out at mentalive.com or email me at Jed at mentalive.com and, you know, say you want to connect. I'm, I look forward to meeting your listeners as well as meeting you and obviously the other guys that are part of your whole network and looking forward to continuing the dialogue. Beautiful. Thank you so much and have a great day. Take care, man. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. I would recommend you go to our website, everyman.co, check out our upcoming events, check out our groups, uh, look at the pictures of us. (laughs) No, I don't know why you'd do that. And my last thought for the week is it is the week after Father's Day. And I would like to invite and challenge you to look back and how deep of a, how, how slow and deep of a time or connection did you make to really consider dad, your dad, or you as a dad, or your kids, or your family in general? And I, I guess what I mean by that is did you just sort of casually uh, put a post on social media or make a call or give a gift without a whole lot of real feeling or heart behind it. And I just want to suggest that many times the thing that we all really want or need more than anything else is uh, some true, true like belonging, connection, and recognition from those who really love us and who really mean something to us. So that's my challenge is to... Um, Maybe, you know, do a gut check on what the connection was this year. And if it was, if it was all it needed to be awesome, you know, if you did your best awesome, uh, but we can always stretch a little bit further, share a little bit more of our real care, which we often keep inside.